welcome. It's a uh, Sunday morning still feels a bit weird to me because no one's sitting where they're supposed to be. Bob and Betty are supposed to be sitting there, and, and it's just kind of all mixed up for me, but uh, some things are the same. I see you guys have some, uh, some people come up and dance during worship. We have that too. Uh, you have kids up here. We actually have our seniors come up and do it, which is, it's a little different. I, actually, it's a lot different uh, if, if you've ever been here, but uh, I said to someone last night, someone asked me, you know, what are you talking about today? And I said, actually, I'm talking about you, to which she looked at me and said, uh, well, I knew this day was coming, but uh, she was surprised because we're going to talk about the church tonight. We're going to talk about you and the church. And I don't know if you've ever seen the, the TV show Top Chef. You've seen that show? No one wants to admit it in church, right? Don't, I'm not recommending the show. Don't, don't text Mark. But uh, I did want to show you this just as we begin. This season on Top Church. Well, the only reason I'd attend this church is if I was in a hearse. One man is on a mission to find the perfect church. Well, here's the sanctuary. Got a whole different kind of pew in here, don't you? If you can't find the perfect church, he'll berate and harass one lucky congregation into perfection. Morning. You call that a handshake? You dress yourself this morning. I've been greeted better at the DMV. How many people do you think you turned right on out of the parking lot when they saw you? Has to be double digits. Now I'm a Muslim. A Muslim, that's right. I'm a visitor who's now walking down the street to a mosque where they can put a bulletin in my hand. So I'm a Muslim, thanks to you. Who are these people? Do you have, do you have any sort of quality control? Just let anybody in here, don't you? Are you kidding me? Here we go. Where's your long hair or your highlights? You got a V-neck? No, of course not. How about some skinny jeans? Sure, pick on the worship leader. Easy target. This is an outrage. It's a, this is the tightest spacing I've seen in Nile in eight seasons of coaching churches. Eight seasons! Atrocious! Abysmal. Atheistic. This is so bad it makes me question the existence of God. Oh! And this coffee, because it was brewed by Satan himself. Which might actually be in your favor because I want someone to pray for me now. Oh, you don't know. All right, yeah. then get out! She's one. We haven't gone over David and Bathsheba. Then you get out. Okay. Could we just pick a tempo? Fifteen times through the chorus is enough, I think. This is good. This is good. The message is on suffering, so perfect. I know we're in Matthew right now, but just... Put your thumb the there. message is supposed to make us think about eternity, not feel eternal itself. All right, and have it, everybody out. Shut it down, shut it down. Shut it down. Gordo Ramsay's quest for perfection continues on another exciting season of Top Church. They said it couldn't be done, but I think I finally did it. The perfect church. Fantastic. So uh, a little parody on Top Chef there, and I, I thought I would do a parody tonight as well for myself tonight, on a Saturday night, or t this morning as well. So I noticed that uh, David Letterman is back on TV. He's got a new Netflix show, and he's been off the air for a little while, but when I was growing up, David Letterman was the best part of late night TV, and by far the best part of his TV show uh, was the top 10 list. So I've got a top 10 list for us this morning. This is the top 10 things that you will never hear at church. 
Are we ready? All right, number 10. Come on, it's my turn to sit in the front row. We, we've given up. We just keep all our junk up here now. So, Number nine, man, I love it when we sing brand new songs I've never hear, heard before. Number eight, I hope they ask for volunteers to sit on the board. Number seven, I miss those wooden pews. Number six, Mark, we're sending you to a leadership conference in the Bahamas. Number five, what, really? That's the secret Wi-Fi password? Number four, wait, wait, I think I have more offering in this pocket. Number three, why do they keep giving that guy a microphone? I'm not sure what that's about. Uh, number two, I was so captivated I didn't even notice the sermon went 45 minutes long. And number one, the thing that's never heard in this church, oh no, a guest speaker. So anyway, last time I spoke, uh, we talked about the importance of a single question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And the name of that message was Why Jesus? And uh, we, we talked about why we should declare, much like Peter did, that Jesus is Lord and Savior. And that was based on a poll from last spring where Angus Reed did an extensive across-Canada survey to which people were basically asked where their views stood on God. And I shared this with you last time, and I said, I found the results surprising. And if you recall, I then quizzed you as to what you thought the numbers would be, and it turned out you were surprised as well. And so what we learned was that 19% of all Canadians don't believe in God, any God. They are labeled here as non-believers. These are people who don't believe there's God of any type and that religion is just made up by man in a way to kind of understand what we can understand and know what we just can't know. And conversely, 21% of Canadians had a faith with some sort of a serious commitment. Uh, the survey and the graph called these people the spiritually committed. These people attend church, have a regular devotional time, they regularly read the Bible, and they pray. But here's the part that I found fascinating. 60% of Canadians believe that there is a God, but they're lost or confused as to what that means and what they should do about it. And the survey split these people into two groups, the spiritually uncertain, which is who we talked about last time, and the privately faithful, and they're both sitting at 30%. And so it's those privately faithful, that 30% of all Canadians that we're going to talk about tonight. And I want to share what the, uh, what the article and what the poll revealed about these people. It says... Uh, I'm quoting the article here. It says, these are people who actually believe in God, believe in heaven, believe in an afterlife, but they have largely not been involved in organized religion. They will go to funerals and weddings and that sort of thing, but their faith is largely a private matter kept separate from the church. And he summarized it by this. Angus Reid said this, it's not that Canadians have totally given up on God, he said. It's that they've totally given up on church. 30% of Canadians believe in God but don't believe in the church. And so last time we looked at uh, the question of why Jesus, and so this time we're just going to talk, to talk about why church. But I think we need to start by understanding what the church is and what it was really con uh, meant to be. And so we can ask, is it, is it this building? Is this the church? Is it the band? Is it the business? Or is it the service? Is it the people? And to answer that question, I think we need to go back to the very beginning, the very beginning of the day the church was born. And we'll do that here in a minute. But what we're going to find is that the best definition of the church is to call it a movement. And the Oxford Dictionary defines the word movement in, in a couple of ways, but there's two that apply to us. The first, it's a group of people with a particular set of aims. And secondly, it's a situation in which people change their opinion on the way they should live and work, and I would add worship. But of course, that's not typically how we define the church today. Most people define the church today as a location, as a building rather than a movement. And so you probably should ask me, uh, when did this happen? Why did this happen? Thanks for asking. 
it's, it's because there's a clue. And, and if we actually go back and take a peek at the Greek, go back to the original text, I think we can learn something here. And so in every Greek reference in the New Testament, the word church is written like this. Let's read it together. Ecclesia. You guys seem to struggle with that. Let me, let me help you out a little bit here. Uh, I'll give you some visuals to help break it down for you. So it's ecclesia. Well, you all know the, fir- the first guy here is Johann Eck, the 15th century theologian. You knew that, right? Lacia. Okay, let's say it together. Ecclesia. Good. You're going to know that word by the time you leave today. I promise you that. But it's the ecclesia. Every time you see the word church, in the New Testament, it says ecclesia. And for 2,000 years, it's had a changing definition. But 2,000 years ago, it had a simple definition. It was simply a gathering or an assembly of people, any people with a common cause. So you could have a gathering or an assembly of people for any reason. It could be a group of people uh, coming together for anything that they, ha- that they share. So it could be a concert. That could be an ecclesia. It could be a sporting event, or it could even be the iPhone launch. People coming together and assembling for a single reason, for a common reason. So ecclesia was not meant to be a replacement for the word temple. This was not an attempt by Christians, and they weren't even called Christians back then, but it was an attempt by them to have their own place to worship. Jesus didn't establish that. In fact, Jesus kind of modeled the opposite for us. I mean, did Jesus go to temple? Absolutely he did. But did Jesus limit his relationship with God the Father to those times when he was in temple? Of course he didn't. The beginning of the church, and we're going to take a look at that event in just a minute, was exactly what Ecclesia said. It was a gathering of people, a movement with a common goal, focusing on a way of living together, working together, and worshiping together. But at some point in time, approximately 300 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, the word Ecclesia was replaced in all of the modern translations with a different word. And it's a word that has a German origin, and it's called Kerk. So if you're if you're my age, the guy on the left, and if you're younger than me, guy on the right, right? But actually, that's a mis- it's not Kirk, it's Kerk. So think of it the way Scotty would have said it. And again, if you're, if you're my age, left, and if you're younger on the right. But that's, that's, that's how the, the word came about being. We changed, the, the, in the translation, we changed it from ecclesia to Kerk. But Kerk literally meant the Lord's house. It was a location. And it meant that this was the place where God could be found. And therefore, if you wanted to find God, you had to go where God hung out. And that was at the church. In fact, the word directly correlates with the word temple in Hebrew. But this was done for a reason, because it was all about control. It was about the church being able to control the people that they were trying to to reach. And so it was about controlling the land and the government and the money. And really, it, it begins a very dark chapter of the church history, which is really... Whether we like it or not, it's our church history. But then along came William Tyndale. And in the early 1500s, William Tyndale made it his mission in life to put an English-language New Testament in every believer's hand, to essentially break the hold that the church had on people. And it's an amazing story. William Tyndale was a linguist. He knew more than seven uh, languages, many of them languages that were no longer commonly spoken. He was kind of an academic that way. But basically, he went through and he, he decided he was going to just translate this into everyday English for people. And at first, the church tried to silence Tyndale, and here was their plan. Every time he would produce masses of amounts of New Testaments, the church would buy them so nobody else could. But of course, that wasn't a great idea because Tyndale started making tons of money from selling all these Bibles because the church kept buying them. So he just kept producing more and more and more. And so 
Finally, um, Tyndale had to flee from England, and he ended up in Germany because they wanted to arrest him. Uh, the church wanted to put him on trial. And so he's living in Germany, and a friend of his, or, or a man he befriends anyway, named Henry Phillips, actually tricked him into leaving Germany on a trip and kidnapped him and took him back to England where he had to face trial by the church. Now, I, I won't tell you how he was executed because it's kind of graphic, but here's, here's what we need to know that in the process of him being on trial by the church, he was given several, several opportunities to recant, to basically say he shouldn't have done that. And in the end, they said, you don't even have to recant. You just have to stop. If you stop producing these English-language Bibles, you go live a quiet life somewhere, we'll release you. And uh, Tyndale, was, uh, he was a little bit salty. And so when they said to him, you know, uh, here's, we're bringing you on trial. All you have to do is say you'll stop. Here's how he responded. He said to them, if God spare my life before many years pass, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than the Pope does. He was executed later that day. I mean, it's, it's, it's like a medieval Bible burn, right? He's, he's not willing to compromise at all. And so by offering up this English translation, um, he was threatening to break the hold that the church had on people, the, the fact that they had to come to this location if they wanted to access God. And so Tyndale knew that this word ecclesia meant the people, not the place. And he believed this so strongly that he paid for those beliefs with his life. So let's just take a word at the first time we see uh, this word ecclesia in Scripture, and we'll go to Matthew 16, to a passage that I spoke about last time I was here, and I know Mark spoke about this just a few weeks ago, but uh, I'm hitting it again because it's just so foundational to, to our faith and what we believe. It's Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say uh, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from human beings. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. See, so he used the word church, uh, the church there is ecclesia. He's talking about the people, not some location. They didn't have a location. There was no home church for Jesus' ministry. And so in the single statement, we get an answer to not only why Jesus, but we also get an answer to what the church is meant to be. It's a movement, a congregation of people with a single purpose, and that purpose was to focus on the life and death and resurrection of Christ Jesus. But this exchange is actually not the beginning of the church. That takes place later. In fact, Luke describes it for us in the book of Acts. So we'll go there now. Acts begins with the resurrected Jesus being taken up into heaven. And just before this happens, Jesus makes one last statement in response to a question that the 11 remaining disciples kept asking. Acts 1.6. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has a time come for you to free Israel and restore your kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times. They are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, through Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And so this word witness here is the legal term, kind of like it still is today. It means to accurately give an account and to testify that something is true. So Jesus is giving the church a mission statement, a goal, because here's the thing about a movement. It has to move. And so the church has to testify or be a witness to who Christ is. 
and what he did to the people that were around him. And then he mentions, he says, here in Jerusalem, that's where they were at the time, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the rest of the world. And you may just think, why doesn't he just say everywhere? But there's actually, it's, it's more succinct to, to get this idea that you start where you are and you, be, and you start moving out until you've, until you've been a witness to the rest of the world. And so when Jesus was taken up into heaven and the apostles named Matthias to replace Judas, the Holy Spirit descends upon them and people are suddenly able to speak and understand every language. It's an amazing scene. But then Peter begins to preach. And he preaches and he preaches. And then he preaches some more. Apparently he didn't have a little digital green clock telling him to wrap it up. Because he went on for hours and hours. And in fact, Luke at one point stops recording what Peter says and just, and just says this instead. With many other words, Peter spoke to the crowd. But in the end, 3,000 people believed and were baptized that day. But I tell you all of that to get to this. It's a description of what these new believers did. As brand new members of the movement, the day after they believed and were baptized, after believe, uh, as they joined this new ecclesia, here's what they did. Acts 2, 42. It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. So one more peek at the Greek, if I may. The word devoted here, it's Greek. It's actually pronounced proskaterio, which I couldn't think of a visual for that. So we're just going to go with proskater oreo. It's close enough. Proskater oreo. And that's that word devoted. But here's what it means. It embodies the idea of persisting, persevering, showing steadfast strength with an intense effort, and my favorite one, remaining firm and focused in a fixed direction. That's what they were doing. All of them were doing this to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship with each other, to sharing in meals, which included the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. See, the early church was completely sold out for these principles. This was not a hobby or a Saturday night or a Sunday morning thing. This was the focus of their lives. So let's look at those things, or a few of them anyway, that they devoted themselves to here in Acts 2.42. And the first thing that Luke describes is their devotion to the apostles' teaching. I think we need to remember that there were no copies of the Bible floating around at this point. If you wanted to know the Word of God, you couldn't read it. You had to hear it. And so they would go, and they would not just uh, once a week go hear a message. They would hear messages daily. They would share with each other what they knew from the Scriptures. And, uh, and obviously the apostles would kind of be in charge of that process. But seeing how much time Jesus spent teaching and preaching, it's not really surprising that they would have a continued hunger for it. You see, it's not enough for them to have an idea of what the Scripture said. They wanted to immerse themselves in it to totally understand what Christ had taught. Paul explains for us the importance of Scripture when he writes to Timothy in his second letter. Uh, chapter 3, starting in verse 14, it says this, But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You, can, you have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. And so if we just kind of zoom out and, and look at that passage as a whole, and you probably can't see it, but this is what I just read, see how often he comes back to this concept of knowing things because you've been taught things, and then what the purpose of those are. Because what, what we learn from the scriptures have it, has implications for each of us in our lives. What we allow ourselves to be taught, uh, we can get the wisdom, we can 
uh, receive the wisdom that leads to our salvation, but we also know that God can increase our faith. It allows us to realize what we're doing wrong and correct it, but it also helps us understand our own behaviors and our own thought processes. It prepares and equips his people, his ecclesia, to do good work, to complete the mission that we've just been talking about. And so the question we have to ask ourselves are, are we devoted to that? Are we pro-skater Oreo to that concept? Or is the Bible something that we dig out once a week and bring to church? Because as a teacher, I can tell you, the teaching, what I do at the front of the classroom is a small piece of, of the puzzle as far as what kids are learning. It's my ability to get them to the place where they're ready to learn and they're willing to learn. It's much more important. And the second thing that Luke describes is fellowship. And I feel that you're probably reaching your limit for interesting Greek translations, so I won't do this for you, but I will say that this word is used 19 times in the New Testament. And every single time it's in relation to a believer and another believer or a believer and God. And it includes this idea of a partnership. So you see, it's more than just grabbing a coffee and having a chat. It was getting together for a coffee and having a chat about your consistent message of being a witness for Christ. So Christian fellowship is more than just hanging out with people. It's sharing your relationship with God, with others, so that you can fulfill the role that we were asked to fulfill in Acts 1. But why can't we do this alone? Remember, we're talking about the 30% of people who are privately faithful. Why can't they just be witnesses on their own? Why do they need the church? Ephesians chapter 3 is a complicated piece of Scripture. In fact, the, the New Living Translation labels that section, God's Mysterious Plan Revealed. And when I read it, I'm like, I would like some more revelation, please, because I don't understand all of it. I really don't. But here's the part I wanted to note. Ephesians 3.10, it says, God's purpose is all this was to use the church to display his wisdom. That word is ecclesia, to use you to display his wisdom. It's a rich variety to to the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so this passage tells us that God has a plan, not for each of us as individuals, but each of us together as the ecclesia. He could have used a different word there. Instead of ecclesia, he could have said believers. He could have said followers of Jesus. He could have said saints. He says that sometimes. He didn't. He wanted to be communal. He said it's the ecclesia. It's the group of believers. That's who he's using to fulfill his plan. And so when it says use the church to fulfill God's plan, it's talking about us as an instrument to complete that work. I think the analogy that's used in 1 Corinthians 12, we've probably all heard this, and, and uh, it refers to the idea of us being part of a body. And so 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12, says this. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jew and some are Gentile. Some are slaves and some are free. But we've all been baptized into one body of, by one spirit, and we all share that same spirit. Yes, the body has many different parts, but just, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, that does not make it any less the part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if the whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part, he's talking about you, each of you, just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it had only one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can never say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. 
So we're all parts of a body. And it doesn't matter how great of an ear you are, you're just an ear. And this has never really connected with me, this analogy. It's, it's kind of awkward for me because I spend all of my time trying to figure out which part of the body I am. And so I, I think of it as a different way. I think of it as uh, having to do with this, this young man right here. That's Beethoven. And so you've heard of Beethoven's fifth, right? I think he wrote it right after the fourth and then right before the sixth. I don't know that for sure. But uh, a lot of people, especially back at the beginning of World War II, they called Beethoven's fifth the victory song. Anybody think why? Think of it this way. Uh, actually, I, sh- I should probably, I'll, I'll warn you, we're about to get off topic for a few minutes. I'm a history teacher, so uh, if, if you need to send a text or grab a coffee, you can do that now. If you're listening online, we're glad you're there, but you might want to hit that little skip 15 seconds ahead buttons a few times if you don't want to hear about this. But in World War II, the nickname Victory Song was given to Beethoven's Fifth. You see, in Britain during the war, V, the, the letter V was used as a symbol of the eventual Allied victory. I'm sure you've all seen pictures like this of Churchill uh, with the V for victory. It had to, and uh, so it makes sense to us when we understand Roman numerals that uh, why they might consider the fifth to be uh, the victory song. But it actually had nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with Morse code. Because the letter V in Morse code is this. Here, here I'll show it to you differently. No? Maybe, maybe I'm dot, 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 dash. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Dot, 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 dash. That's Beethoven's fifth. And all through World War II, they called it the victory song. They'd play it every time the Allies had a great victory because when you heard it in Morse code, it sounded like the fifth. And so suddenly you realize you did know what Beethoven's fifth was. And uh, if, if I could just speak to the, uh, the students in the room right now, um, if, if you have a history teacher that's not sharing these irrelevant yet fascinating stories on a daily basis, you should get a new history teacher. Um, unless you're homeschooled, then that's a, that's a different, different conversation to have. But I thought I'd play for you part of Beethoven's fifth. I, I'm not really a musical guy, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play for you a little section, if you will. Probably an appropriate time to applause as I, yeah, yeah. So hopefully this is working because I don't know how to turn it on, but. Thank you. Uh, That's all I know. But to be fair, do you have any idea how many notes are in Beethoven's fifth? You can't say all of them either. How many notes do you think are in Beethoven's fifth? Let me put it to you this way. If we were to listen to 100 uh, musicians in an orchestra play all of Beethoven's fifth, all four movements, they would play over a quarter million notes in that performance. But that was my bit. And if I can be honest, that was just the way that Beethoven wrote it. It's exactly how he wanted it. And if you were to repeat that a quarter of a million times, you would hear one of the greatest symphonies ever written. You see, it's impossible for any one person to play 100 instruments flawlessly, simultaneously. If you want to have an orchestra play Beethoven's Fifth, you need a group of people. You can't do it by yourself. And what we need to learn is that regardless of what our part might be, We just need to play our part. We just need to play our single note, if you will. 
So Luke also describes the sharing of the Lord's Supper. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And we're going to do that together in just a few minutes. But of course, we're going to do it in a way that was very different than what would have happened with the original church. You see, the Lord's Supper um, used to be not a, not a little meal in itself, but used to be part of a meal. And we know that from the, from the account given to us by, uh, by many of the apostles. But it's, um, it's going to be different than how it would have been done originally, but that's also okay. Because it's meant as a reminder. It's meant to be something that brings us back to the moment of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's supposed to bring us back there. And so what I love sharing most about the Lord's Supper is is this idea that this has been something that was established by Christ himself and has been happening in churches ever since. Although there are different ways of doing it, we know that a mere 50 days after the Last Supper, they were sharing the Lord's Supper together. Chances are, I would assume, that there probably wasn't even 50 days in between. But when we're told that they were sharing the Lord's Supper together, all believers were doing that, remember? That's about 50 days after it was established by Christ. So there's been no gap. There's been no time where this has not been an important part of what we as believers do. And so um, I believe some ushers are going to begin the process of uh, handing out the emblems now. It's a little different on Saturday nights. an usher on Saturday night is whoever mistakenly makes eye contact with me when I'm at the front. So you guys are a little more organized. You have official ushers and everybody again. But I want to tell you a story about, uh, you know who Andy Stanley is? Yeah. You know who his dad is? Charles Stanley, right? Pretty, pretty, pretty uh, important uh, um, pastors of their age, uh, well-written, well-read. And so uh, Andy Stanley tells the story of the time where he and his dad went to, were invited to a church in Georgia. A friend of theirs uh, went, had a church there. And so they, they were invited, but they didn't say they were coming. They just, you know, happened to be in the area, so they dropped by. And uh, as they were brought into this beautiful, gleaming church, uh, they were sat in the back row. Fair enough. And so as, as the rest of the, uh, the people came in, it became pretty clear to them that there was some sort of dividing line going on here. Because what happened was, by the time the service began, the first 20 rows were packed solid. Then there was about 10, thank you. Then there was about 10 rows of empty, gleaming pews. And then there were the Stanley boys in the back corner. And so as, as the service went on, they eventually got to the point where, thank you, uh, they served communion. And uh, as the ushers went through, um, they did the first 20 rows, and then they packed up their stuff, and they, and they took it away. And they, ne- they did not serve Andy Stanley and Charles Stanley in the back of their church. And so... Andy Stanley says he was, he was pretty steamed. He says, mostly because, you know, my dad's Charles Stanley. How can they not uh, serve him communion? Uh, he was a young guy at the time. But uh, after the service, their friend came up and he said, oh, I'm really sorry. That was kind of awkward. Uh, but don't worry. We only do that when we serve the Lord's Supper. And so Andy, ready to be Andy, is ready kind of to spout off at him. And then his dad just kind of puts his hand on his arm and just says, oh? And so he explains. He says, well, listen, you have to be a member of our church to take communion here. You have to be a member. You can't just, you know, we have to know everything about you. We have to decide for you if you're worthy to take the Lord's table. And so, so what we do, and we only do this when we serve Lord's Supper, we separate all the non-members in the back, which in this case happened to just be two visitors. And he says, we do this so that you won't be embarrassed. And... <laughs> Okay, uh, explain, please. And, and so he says, well, it's really awkward if we're serving communion, and when it comes to you, we kind of yank it away and then give it to the next person. So we do it as a kindness to you that uh, you won't be embarrassed by the process where we're not going to serve you communion because you're not a member here. 
And I, I hear that story and I think, I don't, I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. In fact, Scripture tells us that if you're a follower of Christ, you can take part. But Scripture also tells us that it's meant to be a moment of meaning and self-reflection. In fact, the New Living Translation says that you should exam- we should examine ourselves. There's a, there's a tradition in the, uh, the U.S. Navy uh, from World War II right to the current, it still, it still happens to this very day, where all U.S. Navy vessels, as they arrive and depart from Pearl Harbor, all of the men on board, men and women on board, I should say, um, dressed in their Navy whites, will stand at attention around the perimeter of the ship and salute um, as a sign of respect to those who lost their lives there in Pearl Harbor in 1941. But much like when we share the Lord's Supper, there's a bit of a form and a format to it. You have to be ready. You have to make sure your dress whites are ready to go. You have to make sure you're in your assigned spot at the, at the right time. But once it begins, it's not about the form and it's not about uh, you know, following the, the structure that, that you need to do. It's about reflecting. And so much like we share um, the Lord's Supper, when they're doing this, they're having a deeply emotional moment as they come to terms with the fact that so many, so many men and women in their exact position just, uh, just 60 years before, 70 years before, I guess, um, had been through that same thing. And I think Jesus would, had a, would have had an eye on the same sort of idea when he established this. This was about remembering the sacrifice of Christ. It was about reflecting on how your life uh, has been changed by what Christ did. And so we're just going to take a quick moment here to reflect quietly ourselves before we, uh, before we partake. So this is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it, and he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. Paul finishes by saying, For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And we the church, the ecclesia, have been doing that in remembrance of him ever since. I mean, we're sitting in rows eating perfect little cubes of bread, uh, downing shot glasses of grape juice, but we're following the example of the early church as a time where they came together and shared this moment of remembrance whenever they would eat, and we celebrate our king. And the most meaningful time of communion I've ever had was with our youth group a few years ago. We put on a Thanksgiving dinner for about 40 of them, and just during the meal, we, we paused, we stopped, and we shared the Lord's Supper together. And I mean, we were, we were eating little torn-up pieces of nan bread, and we were all had fruitopia in our cups. But it was this meaningful moment where we just stopped and said, this is, this is how we do this. We stop, and we remember that Christ made a sacrifice for us that we didn't deserve and we cannot repay. But what we want to do is just remember and, and, and be thankful. 
So it's not a church the building thing. It's a church the people thing. You don't need to be trained or ordained to do it. In fact, you don't even need to be here. I encourage you, if you have a, some believers coming over to your house to share a meal, you can do communion together with them. There's nothing official about it. It's just a moment to remember and to be thankful. You know, the sign out front says that our church is 24-7. And I sometimes wonder what people driving past might think that means. But if you understand that we are the church, that we are the ecclesia, then we also understand that no matter where we go, because if we're here, or if we're in our small groups, or if we're serving in the community, if we're at work, if we're gathering together in a friend's house, if we're downstairs serving in King's Kids, if we're in the band or we're serving in any other way here at uh, Kingsway, wherever we are, if you're being a witness to who Christ is, then you're part of the church. Because the, the ecclesia is a movement with a singular mission to be a witness to who Christ is. Because a witness is someone who gives a firsthand account to something they have seen, they have heard, or they have experienced. And so we're not called to win souls and convert non-believers, but we are called to give a first-hand account of who Jesus is and how he has transformed each of our personal lives. Because when we, when we all do that, when we all play just that one note that we know how to play, and when we tell just that one story that we have to tell, God can do great things through his church. And so maybe by way of benediction just before I pray here, um, I just want to quote the infamous words of Simon this morning when she said, come on, church. I really enjoyed that, so let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for bringing us together. Thank you so much for the honor of being your ecclesia, to being a group of people coming together to serve you, to share you, and to just be so thankful and to worship you. Uh, we're so unworthy, and you are so uh, gracious to just accept us, to adopt us into your family, and we just want to be um, forever cognizant of that, that you, you deserve the glory, that whatever we can do to share what you've done for us with others is, is the mission of the church. It's the mission of this movement to just share our lives and the, and the impact you've had on them with the people around us. And so as we go out from here today, Lord, I just pray that we would be your church. We would be your church sharing the, the great things, the great news that uh, comes only from you. And we just pray this in your name, Jesus.